Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is bouncing off the walls today. Go on, Alex. Who've we got? This is great. So uh, neither of us can tell you much about this person, but uh, they came on Twitter and revealed their speciality. And we were like, we must have him. So we'll Ian Boyd that. is here. We'll <laughs> that. You said you got so excited. Uh, no, I sent you the message and you went, oh my fucking God, yes. Blame because me. this man is an expert on sinkholes, but it's way more fun than it sounds. Ian, welcome. And tell us a bit about yourself and exactly what your speciality is. Yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, it was just funny how that tweet kind of, I don't know, took off. Um, I'm so, guessing this doesn't usually work with girls where you go, well, <laughs> yeah, I'll write about sinkholes and they just fall at your feet. Yeah, typically not. Uh, typically not. <laughs> um yeah so my name is ian uh ian boyd i'm a first year phd student at uh cambridge i mean queen's college and i am working on sinkholes at the moment sinkholes in paris in the 18th century and uh hoping to turn that into like a larger project about how people thought about time and space in the 18th century but for the moment i'm just all in on the sinkholes this is brilliant. So essentially what you tell us is that Paris is built on like really bad ground for building a city. And in the 18th century, it started falling into random sinkholes. Yeah, I mean, that's the gist. It's, it's ironically built on excellent ground for building cities, mm. yet also terrible ground because the reason it's falling over is because it was built on a bunch of limestone and gypsum. So perfect building material. Yeah. Uh, and as that gets taken out, you're left with the blank space. And so 1774 is when the first sinkhole appears in Paris. What happened? How did it happen? Where? And what was everyone's reaction? Yeah, so good question. So the first, the 1774 sinkhole is the first really big one that we all talk about. And it occurred in a part of Paris known as the uh, Rue d'Enfer, or the uh, Barrière d'Enfer, which in English means the street of hell. So that's a pretty appropriate place for the uh, kind of portal to the underworld to show up and swallow everyone. Yeah, there's a whole Buffy the Vampire Slave vibe going on. Yes, already, exactly. There? It was yeah. actually, it actually was called the Hellmouth uh, at the <laughs> time. So this is very much Buffy. 
Um, so this is in the kind of the left bank of Paris. If you if you're familiar at all with uh, how Paris is kind of designed, it's in, we're in the 14th arrondissement. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've ever visited the catacombs on, on the uh, Place d'Anvers Rochereau, that's exactly basically where the 1774 sinkhole happened. This is a posh part of Paris, isn't it? Yes, um, yes, it is. Uh, it is now. At the yeah. time, this is right at the edge of Paris. So this was the main tax gate into the city. Um, so in 1774, it would have been packed with people, horses, carriages, you name it. If you were going to enter the city to sell your goods, you were going to come through that gate. I'm and- envisioning this massive hole in the ground just opening up and swallowing everything up. Yeah, that's basically basically how it happened. So around 3 p.m. on the 17th of December, there was kind of a loud shaking and creaking and just a massive hole opened up that was around 20 meters long. And just an entire city block had just sunk into the ground in a matter of seconds. All the houses for a quarter mile along the uh, Rue d'Enfer had just been pulled down into earth. Oh my god, that's not even just like a couple of stalls in the market. A whole city block just vanished into the ground. Yep. Yeah, the, the, these these uh, sinkholes got pretty deep. Some of them went as far as 80 meters. Um, I'm sorry, 80 feet, uh, which is pretty terrifyingly deep. So literally a whole city block just dropped into it. It must have been absolute chaos. Yeah, so we don't really know... Uh, I haven't come across any sources of like from 1774 exactly what people thought the day after, mm. but every single source that mentions 1774 mentions the abject terror that people felt right afterwards. Uh, we have the Journal of Paris, which is a, a, a newspaper that kind of didn't exist in 1774, but existed a few years later. Anytime sinkholes come up, they're like, hey, remember how terrifying 1774 was? Um Charles Axel Guillemot, who we'll kind of talk about later, because he's very important for this conversation. Um, every time he mentions 1774, he always follows it up with the wave of terror. Um, so yeah, must have been terrifying. So literally, in the space of what a few seconds, this block-wide hole appears in the middle of Paris, up to 80 feet deep, and everything on top of it disappears. Do we know what the death toll was? Not the 1774 one. Mm. Um, and these There's just tolls, no precedent, is there? Yeah, n- not, not of this size. I, I find it hard to think based off of um, just how Paris geography is that a sinkhole had never happened before in an earlier yeah. period. But this is the first really major one. And part of that we can kind of get into later. We're talking about the expansion of Paris as a city and more urban kind of urbanization. But yeah, this is the first, first big one. And death tolls only tend to be around the teens. Yeah. So not as many as you would expect. I can imagine it being incredibly terrifying. You're standing there doing your shopping or making lunch or whatever you're doing at the time. Suddenly the ground shakes and then everything is just completely swallowed up. I I can't imagine. Yeah. No, it must have been absolutely terrifying. There's a story from um, late, a later period, so in the 1800s, um, I think it's 1866, don't quote me on that year, but in the 1860s, of a man who just, the entire front of his apartment falls off of his house, and he's just sat there 
about to eat his dinner and he's just not moving because he's probably petrified. That is insanity. Yeah. So this is happening, you're saying, because of um, extracting building materials from underneath? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so to talk about, I guess... So a sinkhole really in general is just any type of a hole in the ground caused by like the sur- a collapse of the surface layer of dirt. Um, but I think for the Parisian context, I'll try to keep it brief. Brief. Um, so millions of years ago, um, the area that is now Paris was kind of an underwater ancient sea. This is called, called the Anglo-Paris Basin. Um, and I'm not a 100% a geologist, but... It's safe to say geology happened and um, this ancient sea as it kind of dried up and became what is now Paris uh, left behind a lot of sedimentation. So like gypsum and limestone, um, which is fantastic building material. Of course, a lot of the lime, like a, a lot of the limestone that was dug out of um, this kind of Southern part of Paris, which is where all these sinkholes start happening um, was used in the creation, the original building of uh, Notre Dame, and of the Louvre. It's kind of a fun connection. But if you've ever heard of plaster of Paris, that's basically just gypsum. And all of that gypsum comes from the southeastern side of Paris. Um, so excellent, excellent building material. Unfortunately, forgotten about quarrying. So they kind of start in the Gallo-Roman period. They're starting to mine the exposed rock pretty quickly on uh, it's becoming clear that you need to dig down into a what's called a room and pillar technique. So you build like a, a deep shaft into the earth and then build out horizontally from there. And they started doing that probably around the 12th century. And they didn't stop doing that until 1741. So we've got a few hundred years of just Paris being kind of tunneled out from underneath. And as these tunnels are kind of forgotten about, we are then building houses since this is all happening underground. These tunnels are forgotten about. And then we're just building houses on top of them. Did they make the link in 1774 as to why it happened? Or was it just like an act of terrifying godliness? Yeah. So there's um, terrifying godliness is, is an interesting. You say that it was a, it was considered a diabolic action. Um, and there was, there was a lot of sources saying it was diabolical. Um, and yeah, it was attributed definitely to some type of otherworldliness because there's no government action on this until 1776 when the Ministry of Finances is kind of tasked with figuring out what to do. So you've mentioned him before uh, a few moments earlier. So Charles Axel Guillermo, mm-hmm. um, he experiences, experiences a sinkhole in 1774, doesn't he? So can you tell us what happened? Yeah, um, I'm sorry, 1777, actually. But yes, it's his first day on the job on the 24th of April, 1777. Uh, he's just rolling around on his, uh, in his carriage on his way to the site of the 1774 sinkhole because he's a you know, pretty dedicated guy. It's his first day. He's going to go check out the site of the 1774 sinkhole. And on his way there, about a half a mile from where that original 74 uh, sinkhole appeared another one happens um, and there's a 20 foot hole again that goes down probably 70 feet and 
the very that very day, Guillermo jumps into the hole. He he gets a rope and he goes and he experience goes down because he's looking for what it's called a fonti, um, which is basically just a crack. And he's looking for more of these, and it's really him who starts to decide that we need to map out the um, the catacombs, um, or map out these tunnels and figure out where they go, where these ancient quarries um, are coming from. So there's another one in 1778, isn't there? What happens here? Yeah, so the 1778 one is uh, is an interesting one because it appears definitely the most in journalism because this is kind of a period in French journalism where there's been a little bit less censorship from the government. Um, so straight away, uh, Guillaume in 1797 writes a, writes a memoir, which is extremely useful for understanding a lot of this. And he writes in his, in his memoir that the 1778 sinkhole uh, caused the same fear of the 1774 sinkhole and sent another wave of fear across Paris. Um, so on July the 27th, 1778, uh, in the um, suburbs of Paris in a region called Minimonta, uh, today this is just part of Paris, has completely been taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, the sinkhole opened and instantly just killed seven people. Um, they just fell down. Uh, it was an entire family and then some other people were really, really horrible and sad. Um, and they knew that no one could have survived that. So the search for their bodies went on from the day of the sinkhole, the 27th of July to the 14th of August, which is 25 days. Um, yeah. And this got a lot of updates, um, in the news. So in the Journal de Paris, uh, they had six little updates um, in, in between 14th of August and 27th of July, where basically they're talking about who was pulled out of the rubble today, um, what they had done in their life. And there was also a lot of rumor squashing. So um, twice in the, in these, um, in these updates, does the government and does actually Guillermo himself um, kind of squash some of the rumors. So he says that no, none of the workers have died in this excavation. No one has been severely injured. And uh, we're all working very, very tirelessly. And it's interesting, I think, that there's so much time dedicated to these rumor squashing because it shows that indeed people in Paris were were frightened. Mm. Uh, there was probably a lot of rumor going around that the government couldn't get a hang of taking care of this issue and that Paris at any moment could just fully collapse into itself. Well, this is the thing. This is a four year period where it started happening, where literally people in Paris think that you're just going about your business and suddenly you might drop into a massive hole. Yeah. And die. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's, I, I haven't come across anything that's said somebody has fallen into a sinkhole and survived. Yeah. Um, it does seem to basically just, be a death sentence. Yeah. Um, so uh, Guillermo gave a speech every single evening after the work had been done for the day uh, at the site of the sinkhole. And it seems that he would just talk about how motivated everybody was, um, how impressed he was with his workers, how, how competent everyone was. And this is really like the rhetoric of somebody who's trying to remain calm and giving assuring demeanor to the public. Um, interestingly, from his private notes, we can know that he's worried a lot about funding. 
Hmm. He's really, really um, concerned that that the government is going to cut his funding um, because he basically admits there's no way for him to say how much money this is going to cost because he doesn't know how many tunnels there are. Yeah. He doesn't know where they go and he doesn't know how dangerous they are until he goes there. And then he says, even if they do all get properly secured, it's going to require constant vigilance to, to ensure that the tunnels remain secure. So he's constantly worried about funding uh, because the French government at the time, of course, is going through some pretty big financial issues. And interestingly too, he wonders if people can even take an unseen threat seriously. There's the risk, right? Of, of falling into a hole and dying, but you can't let that move you out of Paris, right? You still have to keep your, your daily well, life. Well, yeah, you can't just rebuild Paris somewhere else and start again, can you? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it was a kind of really difficult situation where there is this invisible imminent threat, uh, yet it's kind of hard to act upon because it's not like it's an invading army or something you can clearly face on. Um, it's just something you need to spend money to fix. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. So, Guillermo, he actually ends up in prison, doesn't he? How does he end up there? Yeah. So um, I guess in just a few words, I would say it's personal workplace drama. Um, That's just gone much, much too far. So to kind of tie back into the concerns about funding, there were always accusations. So so before Guillermo comes into into, uh, his his office as the uh, general inspector general of the tunnels of Paris, which is a really, really long title. Um, It's actually fully, it's the inspector general of the quarries of Paris and the surroundings. Um, before he's in that office, there was this other guy, um, Inspector Dupont, who is a mathematics professor. And uh, he's also tied to the Bureau uh, of Finances. And when Guillemot comes in, Guillemot has some pretty choice words for Inspector Dupont. He thinks that Dupont hasn't done a very effective or good job at maintaining the problem because 
um, there's a 1777 sinkhole, there's a 1778 sinkhole. Clearly, the government hadn't been handling the, the problem for the first year. So 1776 is when the government decides we've got to do something. 1777 is when GMO comes in. So for that one year when the government had attempted to fix the sinkhole issue, they really didn't make much progress, mainly because DuPont, GMO's opinion, didn't know what he was doing. Um, and this, I think, I think we can probably uh, agree with uh, without taking too much sides because it is history and these guys are dead, so it doesn't mm. who was wrong. But uh, there's a story uh, that Guillaume tells to the um, administration of Paris where he says that he was pretty shocked to see Dupont attempting to force a sinkhole to occur by hitting the street with a metal rod. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like needle in haystack job day, right? Scientific. Yeah. It's not very scientific. No. Um, so GMO is more convinced the way to go is to actually go into the tunnels and map them out and see where there's cracks in the walls and such, um, which does make a bit more sense. Um, so yeah, Dupont gets taken off and there's just a really high level of like professional jealousy from, from Dupont. And he's constantly trying to undermine GMO by saying that he's squandering money. Uh, you, you see in, we see in 1789, so the revolution's really starting to kick off. Some kind of exile, exiling and replacements in the French government left a vacuum of power. And Dupont immediately began spreading rumors that Guillemot has been really embezzling money, treating workers unfairly, uh, which is arguably true because Guillemot did have a uh, no-strike policy, mm. which in 1789 wasn't playing too well. There were, this led to several lawsuits uh, against Guillermo, and he was indeed arrested um, kind of near the end of 1790 um, for embezzling money. But pretty quickly, uh, this was only a few months, he was, he was released from, from his imprisonment. And we don't know exactly if he was sent to prison or just sent under house arrest, but the allies in the government for Guillermo got him out of prison or his imprisonment and actually got uh, Dupont to be surveyed and uh, exiled from the government to France. So it was really just professional jealousy that le- led to him spending time in prison. But it's just nonsense, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, That's always it the case though, really, isn't it? Somebody gets jealous. Oh, you know, let's just chuck him into prison. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's very, very odd. Um, there, there is really no truth to the, um, to the concept of Guillermo uh, embezzling money. Uh, or there's no evidence for it. It was just uh, he needed money to fix the the, the the tunnels underneath Paris. But he wasn't even getting too much money. It was it was pretty reasonable. So you've already mentioned that the French government is stra- strapped for cash. We're coming up on the French Revolution, aren't we? So how does this tie in with Paris dropping into random holes in the ground? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the French Revolution... It's it's an interesting one uh, how it ties into this to this story because I think absolutely the inspection of the work of the inspection of tunnels is a hundred percent interrupted by the chaos in France and especially obviously in, in Paris. Um, actually, following Guillemot's arrest in 1791 or when he's released from prison in 1791, he's actually not restored to his original post. He's restored he's restored to the Inspector General of the Quarries outside of Paris. And then we don't see him signing his letters as inspectors of Paris and its surroundings until 1796. 
So it seems like it took him a few years to get his full mm. title back. That sucks. Um, yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of sucks. Um, kind of weird. By um, which time then? Seventeen ninety six. This 17- shit has hit the fan, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's quite funny. He starts uh he starts ending his letters with uh, dear citoyen, so dear citizens. Yeah. Uh, this is a definite language change. People are adjusting, but that's kind of kind of a, a my point, I guess, is that while the revolution is certainly an interruption um, to the to the work being done, and there's certainly some drama of from the revolution. As far as the story of the catacombs relates to the urbanization of Paris and to the kind of built environment, I don't think it would be fair to say the revolution is any type of grand departure. Um, Because well before the revolution in 1777, we see the consolidation of the overlapping jurisdictions of what to do with the tunnels um, from, you know, is it the Ministry of Finance's job? Is it the police's job? the uh, Ministry of the Bridges and Roads' job, they all have the same kind of responsibilities. And we see this in 1777, before the revolution, get consolidated into the inspection of tunnels, which is what Guillemot does. So I think if we focus kind of solely on the municipalization and the kind of built environment of Paris and how building projects were actually carried out and the relationship that government had with construction, Mm kind of from that perspective, the revolution can pass us by almost unnoticed. So I, I think both above ground and below ground, there, didn't, there was no real appreciable change due to the revolution. The, the kind of the, the policy of one organization carrying out the construction underground was already there. Um, I mean, the threat of a collapse of the, southern, of the entire southern side of Paris into the void underneath it it was a threat to the king just as much as it was to the new republic. That being said, I think Guillermo certainly noticed the revolution as he spent time in prison, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so 1780, um, the Les Innocents collapses. Is this just another sinkhole? What, what, what happened? Yeah, yeah, this is a really interesting case. Um, it is not a sinkhole, but it is why we know the catacombs today as the catacombs, this, this kind of collapse of, the, of Les Innocents or the Church of the Holy Innocents. Um, so this was the largest and oldest cemetery in Paris. Um, and by the 1750s and 60s, people begin to wonder just how many more bodies could be supported in this, in this churchyard, in this cemetery. Starting in the 14th century, they had to start burying people in the walls of the cemetery in these structures known as Chanier. And there was, there was a, b- a bunch of controversy about, um, oh, it smells bad. Oh, it's being, bringing bad air to the urban environment. So there's so already some movement kind of to think about maybe moving cemeteries outside of the city. Mm. Um, but then it, after a long period of spring rain in 1780, one of the Chaniers of Les, of, uh, Les Innocents uh, gave way and collapsed into the street and it just spilled a heap of human debris onto the streets of Paris. And that must have been a really grim, grim image to see. Yeah. Uh, generations of humans' remains on the streets. Just a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Um, so on the 4th of September, um, the king gave an edict that said all burial in the Les Innocentes to stop immediately. Um, but Paris, of course, had the problem of what do we do with all the dead? 
Yeah. People are still much dying. like London, it's like you've got to put them somewhere and it becomes, uh, this is probably ahead of London in terms of running out of space and, and what to do with people. Yeah. No, ex- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, when life gives you lemons, right? So when life gives you tunnels, make an ossuary. So yeah. <laughs> it was pretty quickly suggested um, that that's what they should do. And in 1786, they get started. Um, so the mass graves of Les Innocentes are emptied out. Bodies are transported every single evening to the municipal ossuary of, of Paris, which we call the catacombs. Mm. Um, which The entrance to this is actually on the Rue d'Enfer. It's right next to where the original sinkhole happened. And on the 7th of April, 1786, they, a small group of clergy uh, and, and, and Charles-Axel Guillemot um, go and consecrate the the catacombs is this proper site for Christian burial. And every evening afterwards for about two years, uh, the nearly 2 million dead that were buried in Les Innocents are moved to the catacombs. So they're moved by torch. The, the bodies are placed on a, on a covered wagon. Um, priests are chanting the funeral mass, both in front of and behind the wagons. And they're just going by torchlight uh, until the cemeteries are empty incredible it's a logistical effort isn't it were they maintaining details of who they were moving and when or was it just like a chuck everybody in the back of the van scenario it it was very much a chuck everyone in the back of the van scenario there is none of the bones in the catacombs are really properly identified um and of course when the revolution happens a lot more people just get kind of unceremoniously dumped in there as well um so today there's around seven million people buried underneath paris um even uh, Charles Axel Guillemot is buried in there somewhere. We don't know where, but he is in there. That's insane that he's yeah. ended up down there as well. But who is the Diable Vert? Oh, this is such a fun and weird, weird topic. So uh, in case you couldn't tell by my interest in sinkholes and catacombs, I kind of like spooky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, I was reading this book by uh, the author Graham Robb. It's called Parisians, an Adventure History of Paris. And he does actually an entire chapter about the catacombs. And it's pretty good. I I, I recommend it to anyone who wants to do a little bit bit more reading about this story and just Paris in general. But he mentions a really interesting story that workers in the tunnels underneath Paris would claim to see footprints um, in previously uncharted tunnels. And that they would smell a sulfurous smell and they would see a green figure in the corner of their eyes and it would run extremely quickly and it was bad luck to see it. If you saw it, bad, something bad was going to happen to you. And uh, Rob identifies this character as the homme vert or the green man. And after that, I, after I read that, I tried to find some more information and I couldn't find anything. It was by chance I was reading about... Um, kind of the area around the Rue d'Enfer, and there was this old castle that was built by Robert II of France. And it's located um, actually on what is now the uh, Jardin de Luxembourg. It's called the Chateau Vauvert. Um, and there's a phrase actually in, in French called Allez au Vauvert, which basically means go very far away. Um, but shortly after Robert II's death in 1031, the castle was abandoned and it fell into a state of disrepair. And there was this 
myth that began to kind of happen, like an urban legend in Paris mythology of this green devil. That that was the reason the castle was abandoned was because it was haunted by this green devil. And uh, that's where it lived and it haunted the area. So in 1257, King Louis IX gave the castle grounds to the Carthusian uh, order so that they could create a monastery. And there was rumor that he did this because the area was haunted and he thought if anyone can get rid of the of the Diable of uh, Vert, it would be the Carthusians. This was all kind of contemporarily happening. So there was this uh, French historian named uh, Jean-Baptiste de Lacan, who was alive in the uh, 1790s. He was saying that it was... Um, he actually said the castle had been abandoned because of the numerous tunnels underneath it caused it to collapse. Um, so kind of saw that coming. Mm. Um, this kind of... This castle was um, was located near the Rue d'Enfer, and it was basically just this, uh, this, this myth of this guy who would just haunt, haunt around the area. I mean, hell must have its devil, right? Yep. So he, 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 was, he would go around haunting everything. The castle was destroyed in 1790 and, and uh, well, was sold in 1790 and then demolished in 1796. Um, but we have, we have lots of stories that continue long after, um, after that. But, the existence of the uh, Diable de Vauvert or the Diable Vert uh, being so heavily associated with this kind of region of the southern side of Paris is probably why the sinkholes were originally attributed to like this diabolical action. Um, because interestingly, in the 1820s, there's a story, <clears throat> pardon me, there's a story in the 1820s of a of a spice shop owner who hears like a clanging around. And then um, there's actually another collapse. There's another sinkhole, but it's a small one. Mm. And he blames it on, um, on the devil, on the, the, the Diable Vert. So these kind of strong connections between this kind of sinkhole effect, this kind of shaking and, 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 and spooky sounds, um, even in the 1820s, there's, there's a conscious associate. The Diable Vert is there in the, uh, in the kind of consciousness of per- Parisians. And perhaps in 1774, it felt that the devil of Vauvert had finally awoken to wreak his, his vengeance against all of Paris. There are stories of, of bricks being thrown by mysterious people or by, from mysterious directions by, by nobody, and it was probably the Diable Vauvert. The Diable Vert is just this very heavily associated with this one region of Paris. It's kind of an urban legend. He's like the Sasquatch. Love it. What's the risk of um, one happening now? Do you know? Yeah. Um, so Paris is deemed safe now, um, but the work, the work continues to this day. The uh, inspection, the inspection générale des carrières de Paris, or the just general the inspection of the uh, tunnels of Paris, that organization is still part of the French government today. It still exists and they're still doing their job of ensuring there is no collapse. Um, I think every part, every neighborhood of Paris is deemed safe, except for Montmartre is deemed to still have some issues to work on. But I, I wouldn't worry about it if I went to Paris. Yeah, <laughs> the likelihood of dropping into a hole is not that great. Yeah. Warning no. people, you will not be dropping into holes if you go to Paris. <laughs> yeah, you will not be. It's, it's, it, is, it is safe. Um, it's made me laugh that the area with the slightly higher risk is where all the tourists are. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> Oops, sorry. There go all the Brits. <laughs> yeah, that talk about a Brexit, right? Yeah, taking it literally. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, we're so lucky that we clocked you on Twitter because we could have asked you, we asked you to come and join us and talk about sinkholes, something that Begged. I didn't actually think <laughs> that Alex and I would be talking about on this podcast. It's brilliant though. What an excellent little snippet of Paris history though. And we haven't had it much on Paris exactly. thus far in this. It's been brilliant. Oh yeah, it's been great for me too. I've really enjoyed talking about this. Always happy to talk about sinkholes or Paris. So this has been a lot of fun for me. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. And you can now tell your grandchildren that once when they're bored of hearing about sinkholes, you can say, oh, once two women threw themselves at me because of sinkholes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There you go. Vindication, finally. Join us on Monday when Richard Osgood will be with us to talk all about his archaeological hunt for tanks around Bullecourt. This is absolutely brilliant, so don't miss that. I had no idea how cool this story was. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.